Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Another interesting thing that happened, so at this time, I had a chance to meet Congressman John Conyers, who was a, a long-standing music fan, especially for, for jazz and blues. And Congressman Conyers wanted to advance a bill in the House that radio would pay the musicians and the performers for play on the radio. That is something that is done in Europe. For radio play in Europe is something that's paid, but it has never been done in the US. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was GMI alum Jeffrey Thenish talking about a critical point in his journey from GMI to Motown via his career as an intellectual property attorney. I spoke with Jeffrey about his career, his involvement in entrepreneurial music enterprises, and all things Motown, where he spends a lot of his time and professional energies. Jeffrey Thenish, thank you very much for joining us today on Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering's official podcast. And you are a Kettering, Kettering GMI. So I graduated in 1990 when it was still the GMI and Engineering Management Institute. Okay, so you are a GMI grad, a well-known IP attorney, for those of you not in legal circles, that's intellectual property. And that has led you to a number of things which we are going to discuss. A large theme behind it all is Motown. So for those of you listeners out there who are Motown fans, uh, stay tuned because we're going to get into a lot of it. But one of the things that's most interesting where I want to start, Jeffrey, is is a very unique, in fact, the most unique sort of, I guess, engineering kind of issue that has come across my desk in terms of the podcast, and that is developing a new type of drumstick for drummers who are suffering issues like carpal tunnel syndrome, and you have gotten behind an effort to uh, address that issue with some new drumsticks. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about that and and how you got into that, what that's about, and then we're going to jump into some wider topics. Yeah, and it's a real honor to be here, to be able to talk about these things. In fact, it's the drumsticks in our company, Biocognitive Percussion, that led me back to Kettering University now. We uh, are, are part of a startup, and I'm a, an investor and a principal in a startup that has gotten some funding from the state of Michigan. And I'm very proud to say that we have included the Kettering University faculty as part of our research. And it's been a it's really been an eye-opening experience for me to come back here after all these years and see all the differences at the university. And all of them are good and all of them are positive. I should mention, although 
our listeners can't see it, but you are sitting actually at Kettering, uh, just in the shadow of the new learning commons in the uh, radio studio, right? Yes, and it's amazing. The advancements in the technology and the new buildings here. If I'm speaking to any of my contemporaries that I went to school here with in the 1980s, it is really a, a completely different institution and for the better. I've had a chance to meet President McMahon and I've done the research with Professor Dan Ludwigson, who's a department head here, as well as uh, Lucy King, who's a professor emeritus about developing our drumsticks and looking for new materials to help drummers as they get older because of the carpal tunnel and other wrist and tendon problems that real professional drummers and touring musicians encounter later in their career. So let me draw a parallel. It wasn't for health reasons. It was for technical reasons and improvement reasons, but uh, some people know I have a background as a tennis player. I played with wood and suddenly everybody was playing with titanium and boron and everything else. And and I don't know actually whether that's helped with tennis elbow, but what you're saying is, you know, I tend to think of drumsticks as two sticks of wood, sit out there and drum, but there's some real health issues and it has to do with vibration and reverberation and elbows and, and so on and also how long they last. And so you're going to composites? Is that what biocognitive is doing? Yeah, that would be the holy grail, is to, is to do this research with material science to find a composite material that can produce the tone and the sound of a traditional wooden drumstick so that a real musician and a real you know, professional musician will want to embrace the composite yet it could still have some benefits where it reduces what's called the uh, parasympathetic vibration that reaches back up from the stick into the wrist and tendon of the drummer. There are many, many examples of uh, truly accomplished drummers. I had the great pleasure of doing some work with the late Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. And the act of drumming, especially you know a rock drummer, it's very, very physical and involves an enormous sense of uh, coordination of hands and feet. And it takes a toll on the human body, especially after a number of years. And if you are a touring musician, you're doing six shows a week at, at a minimum, and that can take its toll on you. And it, and it has cut some careers of drummers short. Well, I know if, if you watch, and, and a lot of younger people will not understand these references, but if you watch... Ginger Baker from Cream or Buddy Rich, the great uh, drummer. I actually looked at some videos after we initially spoke. And it's a really, it's a really physically taxing situation to be drumming for a long period of time. And then you're holding your hands up. Uh, if you just sit there and hold your hands up at your desk for 20 minutes, it's it's a challenge. But drumming for a long sets and the 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 I imagine it, it is a lot and it does take its toll. Yes. And uh not only are we seeking to reduce that vibration that comes up from, from the stick, but we're also trying to maintain the quality of the performance. Because if you think about it, drummers at this caliber and the height of their careers, they take great pride in their work product, as all of us do in you know, whatever field of endeavor that we're in. And so there's a traditional, how should I say this? 
a traditional lack of interest in anything but a wooden drumstick, which has been the core. And wooden drumsticks are are all mostly all hickory drumsticks. And as I've educated myself over the years, there's there's seven different families or types of hickory. One of the things about traditional drumsticks is the uh, the act of drumming is so physical that you will see a real hardcore rock drummer go through half a dozen to a dozen pairs of sticks in one performance. They simply they simply break just from just from the sheer force. So the idea idea of biocognitive drumsticks would be to not only reduce that force that the drummer receives back up from the stick, but that they would last longer with the idea they would last longer in terms of wooden sticks and uh, try to reach that kind of price parity in the market. And well, that that's pretty interesting. Now tell me, you're working on this with some Kettering engineering faculty. Where does it stand right now? Yes, we've had some great success and developed some great relationships with several faculty members here at Kettering. One of the things I'm most pleased about is that we were able to get some funding from the state of Michigan, some business startup funding, of which there is a lot. And I uh, just a just a, a quick aside: if there's anyone listening to me, or new students, or current students, or or graduates that are ever interested in starting their own business, please seek funding and assistance from the state of Michigan. It's a it's a tremendous resource, and BioCognitive was able to do that, and we got some grant money which we then engage in a contract with Kettering. Professor Ludwigson has done some amazing work for us on acoustics and vibration to get the sound, because that is the most important thing, is that no drummer is going to buy a drumstick from us unless it sounds at least as good as wood. They're not going to diminish their performance. So we, you know, we're trying to understand wood from the acoustic standpoint and then compare that to some of the material. It's still in the stage where we uh, we haven't found that Goldilocks material yet. So you're you're still researching, developing products. You're still in the lab, as it were. Yes, we've we've come up with some sticks that that sounded fantastic and that felt good in the drummer's hands, but we can't get them to last. The the beating that a stick takes on the rim as the the physical act of drumming, even these composite sticks will delaminate. And so we're trying to find something that will that will sound good and last long. Wow. So that's pretty interesting. Well, now that leads us to sort of the next question. You graduate from GMI. You decide you want to be an attorney. You go to law school. And that was X years ago. And now you're very involved because what we'll find out in a few minutes here is that's just the beginning of your involvements with Motown. So tell me a little bit about how you got from there to here. I understand you started in corporate law, switched quickly to IP, but how did, how'd you get where, where you are? And, and, and share with us a couple of the stories about, about Motown that you run across. Sure. I uh, graduated from uh, GMI, and I really wanted to continue some type of education. I really wanted to go on to some form of graduate school. I was uh, heavily influenced by my mother. My parents were a little older, and my mother was a Depression-era kid. And so she always instilled in me, you know, you need to have, you need to be a, have a profession, doctor, lawyer, or accountant. 
And so I think that finally stuck with me. And even though I was not the most serious student during my years here at, at GMI, I did have a good experience and I decided to go to law school afterwards and had some great professors here at, at GMI. I do want to do a shout out to Professor Bruce Boss, who was just a, a very inspiring and a, and, a, and a great professor. He uh, wrote my recommendations for law school. I uh, went to uh, law school and I enjoyed it. I really kind of got into my thing where I became a more serious student. I uh, graduated and, and came back to Michigan and uh, worked uh, in the intellectual property field for one of the biggest intellectual property firms in Michigan. It, it, it was in the 1990s and, it's, and it still is today. And you know, learned a lot of things, worked under some great people, but I also kind of had this idea, I really enjoyed working in advocating for individual people. And so didn't you start then, didn't one of your, wasn't one of your clients the surviving spouse of a Motown musician? Yeah, I never had a, an interest in music. It was never like a, a main focus in my life. And it's one of these things that, you know, kind of the twists of fate that sometimes happen in life. Through another client, I uh, met a woman named Annie Jamerson. And Annie Jamerson is the widow of James Jamerson. And if you are a, uh, a music person at all, you might recognize the name James Jamerson. So James Jamerson is literally the most influential bass players of all time. Even if any year that you want to read Rolling Stones magazine's list of most influential guitar players, most influential bass players, James Jamerson is literally number one. Paul McCartney, the bass player, of course, from the Beatles, cites Jamerson as his inspiration. And Jamerson was, by all accounts, a prodigy. You know, sometimes we we overuse that word in today's day and age. But he came up and he was the in-house bass player at Motown. It is said that James Jamerson played on more number one records and rock and roll hits than the Beach Boys and Elvis combined. Wow. Wow. So... But you met his surviving spouse, is that correct? Yes, and you know, like a lot of musicians then and now, Mr. Jameson lived hard and and died young, and he died in 1983 at a very you know tender age of 47. And his widow Annie has continued to live in Detroit in the house that they've had since the 1960s. And I had a chance to meet with her and and we talked about his music and we talked about what what types of musical rights or, and revenues and royalties may be available to her. And that kind of started this passion and led me down this road of kind of making that almost the focus of my legal practice. I was able to get some money for Mrs. Jamerson and some some extra income for her. And what I found was the entire Motown community is very, very tightly knit. These are individuals that knew each other before Motown. They would know each other from the churches in Detroit or the, or the junior highs. Mary Wilson, the late Mary Wilson from the Supremes, 
always told me a story of how she met Florence Ballard in their junior high. They, they literally had a vocal teacher in their junior high. I mean, that's one of the things I think gets lost over time is that in the 50s, Detroit was an extremely vibrant and successful city. And with the tax revenues from the residents and the car companies, the Detroit public school system was able to afford you know, fantastic musical programs and, and all kinds of resources for these people that later became what we all know as you know, commonly uh, the, the, mo- the greats of Motown. That's, that's amazing. And then they, they also knew Diana Ross from a church group or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was Mary Wilson that, you know, she, she was singing with uh, Florence Ballard from junior high and they wanted to add another person. And I think it was Florence that said, Oh, I know this woman named Diane from church and the rest is history as they say. So fast forward from Annie Jamerson, you end up representing or working with quite a few Motown people or their families or their heirs to ensure that they have the rights to some of the the music and the income from their families, right? Yeah, it really kind of took on a life of its own. A lot of word of mouth referrals. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I was able to to do some positive things for some of the widows that I met earlier. And then through word of mouth and referrals, I was then able to meet some of the more major songwriters and other performers who we all know as as common names from Motown. And another interesting thing that happened, so at this time, I had a chance to meet Congressman John Conyers, who was a a long-standing music fan, especially for, for jazz and blues. And Congressman Conyers wanted to advance a bill in the House that radio would pay the musicians and the performers for play on the radio. That is something that is done in Europe. For radio play in Europe is something that's paid, but it has never been done in the US. And so I had a chance to work with him on that issue. And again, it kind of it kind of mushroomed from there. So that that's really interesting. Well, now you told me you had a client who got caught between Miles Davis and Mick Jagger. Am I correct on that? <laughs> Yeah, this is a, a fabulous. Uh, it's one of these things that uh, is so like strange but true. It almost defies uh, belief. I had a, a a very very great client by the name of Michael Henderson, and unfortunately, Michael Henderson has passed away now. But again, not to use the word child prodigy too much, but Michael Henderson was also a musical prodigy. He also played the bass. And literally, Michael Henderson, at the tender age of 17, was playing for Stevie Wonder. He was uh, touring and and playing for Stevie Wonder. And this is the late 60s, early 70s, when Stevie Wonder was at the height of his touring. And none other than Miles Davis coaches Michael Henderson from Stevie Wonder's band to be in Miles Davis's group. And I think this is a real testament to how great Michael Henderson was, you know, at any age. But think about this as a 17-year-old kid to be playing with Miles Davis at, at that level. I mean, it was 
already amazing to be touring with Stevie Wonder and playing when you're 17. But the level of, of musical uh, professionalism that Miles Davis demanded from his people for a 17-year-old is, is amazing. But Michael uh, always had many great stories, and I, and I do miss him to this day. One of the, the best ones that always, every time I think of him, it just brings a smile to my face. Because uh, we all know how we were when we were teenagers. And he's explaining to me that, you know, just, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm in the band, but it's just like any other job. When you're the new guy and you're the kid and you're the low man on the totem pole, you got to do all the grunt work. You, you know, so it was like, you know, part of his job was to be everybody in the band had a pecking order and he was the new guy and he was the kid. So he would be the gopher. He would do this. He would do that. And Michael told me this story that the band was all at Miles Davis's house in Harlem, in New York City. And you don't have to be a Miles Davis fan to know that uh, the, the Miles Davis's place in Harlem was kind of a mecca in the 60s and 70s for all kinds of artists and people to go to to kind of pay homage to him. Michael's telling a story that the, all the guys in the band are all sitting around Miles Davis's living room in Harlem and Miles Davis is plucking at the piano and they're talking about you know, their, maybe what their set list is going to be at their next show. And there's a knock at the door of Miles Davis's house and knock it, you know, and everybody starts to look at Michael because he was the kid. He was the new guy. So just to make sure that everybody kind of had their own place in the pecking order, it was the lowest guy that would, you know, be the guy to open the door and, and you know, do the job of opening the door. So everybody looks at him, including Miles Davis, and then, you know, knock, a second knock at the door. I can't imitate Miles Davis, but as again, you don't have to be a fan of his to know he had a very raspy and gravelly voice. Michael says that Miles Davis looks at him and says, go answer the door. So Michael said, you know, I'm 17 years old. I work for Miles Davis. So I got up, answered the door, opened the door. And outside of the door on Miles Davis's stoop at his house is none other than Mick Jagger. And apparently Mick Jagger was in town in New York to do shows or, or interviews or, or what have you. But uh, Mick Jagger was there in New York and he had come up to see Miles Davis. But what Michael didn't know is that for some reason, at that particular moment in time, there was some kind of feud between Miles Davis and Mick Jagger. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, somebody said something in an interview that rubbed the other one the wrong way or my, rubbed Miles Davis the wrong way. Michael tells the story, he opens the door and he's starstruck to see Mick Jagger on the other side of the door. He said, you know, I'm a 17 year old kid and, you know, there's Mick Jagger. And, you know, he, he's, he like froze for a moment and he looks back at, into the living room and there's Miles Davis kind of leaning over from his piano bench. And Miles Davis says, who is it? And Mike, Michael Henderson, he's, you know, he's stammering. And he says, uh, uh, it, uh, it's uh, Mick Jagger to see you, Mr. Davis. Miles Davis looks around, looks over so he can see out into the doorway, Mick Jagger. And Miles Davis says, because he's upset with Mick Jagger at that time, tells Michael, he says, close the door. 
And Michael said he froze because on one hand is like, on the other side is like, that's Mick Jagger. And on the other hand is, you know, everybody's looking at him. The whole band, including Miles Davis, are all looking at Michael from the inside of, of Miles Davis's house. Mick Jagger is looking at Michael from outside the door. And he said he froze. He just, he, you know, I was 17 years old. I, I didn't know what to do. So Miles Davis repeats, he closed the door. And he said he still, he froze. He said, my heart's beating. I'm looking at Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger's looking at me. And he's just, you know, wanting somebody to help him. You know, he's kind of praying that, you know, one of the other members of the band is going to help him out. But of course, you know, he's, since he's the new guy, nobody's going to help him. And so finally, Miles Davis says, more emphatically, I told you to close the door, you know, very loudly to uh, to Michael Henderson. So finally, Michael says that snapped him out of it. He's like, on one hand, there's Mick Jagger. On the other hand, you know, it's Miles Davis, my boss. Michael, look, Michael tells me the story. He says, Jeffrey, as sure as I'm standing here, I slammed the door in Mick Jagger's face. <laughs> That's 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 great. It's yeah. one it's one thing to meet these people. It's another thing to slam the door in their face. But so you spend almost all your time representing people in the industry, and specifically in Detroit. Is that right? Yeah, and it, and and fortunately, it has kind of expanded a little bit to some different genres. I've had the um, great fortune of representing George Clinton from uh, Parliament Funkadelic in a number of ways, especially as trying to recapture or reclaim some of his music and work with a number of uh, his artists that he's played with over time. So it's um, a lot with uh, with Motown, but also different genres and different people of music. Is it mostly involve recover- uh, rights issues or because it strikes me that the drumsticks and the drum set are an entirely different sort of thing? It, it is different, and but one of the unique features, and you know, I'm going to put on my lawyer hat for a minute here, is to say that the U.S. Copyright Act has an amazing provision in it. You know, sometimes we we uh, chastise our Congress too much, especially if anyone's listening to this right now. As I'm speaking, just literally a couple of days ago, the House of Representatives voted out their Speaker of the House, so it's a lot of dysfunction in Congress. But one of the things that Congress did get right was that when they enacted the U.S. Copyright Act, they put in a provision where an author of a work, in this case, a songwriter, can terminate a prior grant or a prior assignment that they may have made for their rights after a certain number of years, and therefore they can then reclaim or recapture those legal interests. And when it comes to a songwriter, that's what's in the music publishing, and that's where all the money is. So if there's going to be a cover version, that's a license and a payment as a, for, the, for the publishing of the music. When it's used in a TV show, a movie, or a commercial, that's all a publishing revenue that comes from uh, the publishing. So if the songwriters can get those rights back, it's a game changer for their personal financial livelihood, as well as their heirs if they're deceased. What's the level of awareness? Because I assume that is for writers and any creatives, correct? 
Yeah, under the Copyright Act. So it doesn't have to be a songwriter. It could be, you know, if I wrote the great American novel, and let's say that I wrote a novel and my goal and, and everything I dreamed of is I just wanted to see my book in the bookstores and, and see it on display and I could go in and do a book signing. But what people don't understand is that when I signed that book publishing deal, you know, they would pay me like a nice shiny quarter and then take all my rights forever in perpetuity. And therefore, if I truly did write the great American novel that was, you know, something like Catcher in the Rye, uh, where there's copies in every high school, at least in my day, there was physical right. copies, the author doesn't get a chance to share in that because they've, they've already assigned and transferred their rights. So this termination provision truly is a second bite at the apple. And it's an amazing thing that really bolsters U.S. Uh, creativity. And it's a great thing for, uh, for you know, authors, painters, sculptors, and songwriters. And how, what, I mean, I don't know how you answer this, but I guess I would say is the le- lack of awareness about this significant or do people, uh, artists, and uh, generally know about it? Yeah, so that's one of the things I want to say is that, you know, everything you've heard about the music industry and it being a cutthroat business is likely true. And so they're one of the things that that started with me when I first started getting into this, you know, as kind of a, a lawyer that, you know, I, you know, I kind of came to this like, oh, oh, it'll just be like if it's bankruptcy law, I can go to the law library and there's going to be a treatise on bankruptcy. And I get to read about, you know, how it's done and and how it works. There's nothing on this. And it's because the music industry does not want these people to know about their rights. And they certainly don't want their heirs to know about these rights. And so it's something that is not not publicized. It's not very well known. And, And it's just a shame. It's something that the music industry itself is is widely known for as far as historical unfairness. Uh, George Clinton always had a, an amazing story that I that always uh, made me laugh when he talks about when he was signed with the Casablanca record label in the 1970s. Yeah, some of your viewers or listeners may have seen a recent movie that came out called Spinning Gold. And the movie Spinning Gold was about a gentleman named Neil Bogart and his career in music. And Neil Bogart was the founder of Casablanca Music. And in the 70s, George Clinton was assigned to Casablanca. George has a story that he happened to be in L.A. at a certain time, and he was between shows. And he was desperately in need of money. And he goes to the offices of Casablanca to see Neil Bogart to say, you know, you know you're ripping me off. You need to pay me. And of course, they try to keep him out and say, oh, he's not here. He can't see you. So finally, you know, basically bursts into the room himself and demands, you know, makes this demand on Neil Bogart. And to Neil Bogart's credit, he wasn't intimidated. He pushed back equally, took his finger and he put it back into George Clinton's chest and says, I told you I'd make you famous. I never told you I would make you rich. <laughs> and that really is the essence of, to me, the music industry, and that uh, you're never going to get what you deserve unless you have a good lawyer and you can start clawing back what's right, rightfully yours. Well, Jeffrey Thenish of the Thenish Law Group, I, uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your sharing these, 
unusual corner, at least to me, of the legal profession and and the stories from uh, Motown. And I look forward to following the evolution of the drumsticks. And I wish you well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.